Welcome to a new episode of Young, Wild and Green, a podcast exploring the role of the individual, so your role for sustainability. Under the model, a little goes a long way, we will discuss what we, as political agents of change, can do, while also challenging and questioning our role. We will explore and begin our journey towards a conscious and greener society. Today's episode is moderated by me, Julian Wilming, and Henriette Reinert. Hello. Today, we are very excited to have Berfin Marx with us. Berfin Marx is a political scientist and activist, a freelance writer and journalist with an Instagram account that has more than 25,000 followers. Her main focus topics are feminism, capitalism and anti-racism. She has Kurdish roots and was born and raised in Austria. She also contributed to the book Great Green Thinking. I actually stumbled upon her because she posted a viral video on Instagram which criticized that the responsibility of solving the climate crisis is put solely on consumers, while what we actually need are rather big changes in the system. Together with Berfin, we will talk about activism, intersectionality and the climate crisis. Today, we will get a very practical perspective and will learn what activists are doing in times of social distancing and what they think about the implications of COVID-19 for sustainability and the societal changes that have occurred during COVID-19. Activism and the voicing of opinion becomes more and more important. And this podcast episode aims to inspire listeners to become politically active. So Berfin, thank you again for joining us today and for helping us to dive into this inspiring topic. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So I would like to know, how would you actually describe what you, what exactly you're engaging for? So I would say in general, I'm engaging for social justice and maybe liberation of the oppressed and the marginalized. But on a smaller picture, I care a lot about um, like political education, especially on social media. And just like reaching Gen Z, you know, like the younger people and like apolitical people, people who are too scared of politics and people who might be too afraid to get involved. And the other thing is just like liberals, maybe like people who are leaning towards the left and to show them that there are actually more progressive ideas. And yeah, just like spreading awareness about certain topics and just educating people over social media. And what would you say Or why do you think that this is important to engage for social justice? And like maybe you can also explain your history a bit and how you came to this topic and what were the motivating factors why you engage in such a yeah political way today? So when it comes to social justice, for like almost most people, I think it has like a personal reason. I'm an immigrant woman. So of course, like I faced a lot of uh, discrimination throughout my life. And at the age of like 16 or 17, I just watched how the refugee crisis was handled in Austria and Germany. And that's when I was firstly interested in politics and how things just generally like work around the world and how racism and wars and imperialism and politics generally work. And so the reason why 
I especially like try to engage for political education, for example, is because I feel like politics usually seem um, very complex for a lot of people. A lot of people just associate politics with like old white men talking about certain things with big words that no one usually understands. And I think the point is just like taking away this fear of politics and just making sure that politics are not really like gatekept. So like everyone can have a voice and especially those who usually are not represented in governments and institutions who are like marginalized, working class people, lower class people, that those kind of specific groups learn more about their own oppression and just politics in general. I think that's very important. So yeah, that's the reason. So you also want to help people that maybe have a less privileged background. Let's take social social inequality as an example. So maybe like they don't have as much money as, yeah, like they don't have a middle income. Um, would you say that you kind of want to show them how they can engage for their own cause so that maybe in the future, you know, in politics, it will improve to their benefit because um, you think that they're maybe not represented enough in politics? Yes. So I think it's mostly about, like, especially about non-academic people, as you said, like, people who maybe don't have access to university or didn't have access to political education or just don't know the big words. Like you cannot walk around the world and expect everyone to understand what capitalism is, what neoliberalism is, what intersectional feminism is. So a big reason why I want to do like political education is especially because I want to take this fear away from these big words and just like try to explain things as short as possible and as easy as possible. So I think it's it's mostly like targeted at working class people and marginalized people, as you said as well, and people who have basically no access to academia and who do not especially have the privilege to read certain books and understand certain yeah language in academia yeah i think that's really 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 cool that you're doing this because we're also very much interested in political education and as of right now i think when i last checked but you may correct me if it's a new number you have twenty-five thousand followers on instagram which I assume required a lot of hard work because I think it doesn't happen just like that. So could you maybe briefly explain how you grew your followers and what the key moments in the journey were that actually led you to where you are today? And maybe also how you developed the content and how it maybe evolved. Has it always been the same or has it changed along the way? Um, so the funny thing is, like, whenever people ask me this, I always say that I never wanted to, like, grow a following. I never wanted to have, like, a community and a reach like that. That was never, like, my plan or my intention. It just started around two years ago, I think, when I was just always somehow interested in politics. I come from a very political household. And I used to share, like, a lot of things on my account, like, political things on my account, And it used to be a private account. And one day I just, 
I just went public with it and I started doing like infographics for friends and family about certain topics. I think one of the first infographics I did was about the struggle of Kurdish people, for example, which um, went viral, which was weird for me. It had like 20,000 likes or something. And I was like, oh, okay, like people are kind of interested in this. And I kept going. And over the last year, I feel like I started like doing some changes. So I like I tried to move move away from like dry infographics where I feel like a lot of people don't want to read them anymore to more like short videos, for example, um, reels or TikToks. But yeah, I, that, that was like, those were like the small changes I did. But I think what made it so successful was just the fact that I was studying political sciences on the side. And whenever I would like learn something new or like would uh, find something out that I didn't know, I just uh, wanted to like share it with followers on my profile and people liked it. And I feel like key moments would be like, Definitely starting my journalism career, something that I would have never imagined doing in my life, to be honest, and co-writing a book about sustainability and capitalism with other activists. It's called Great Green Thinking. And yeah, I feel like other key moments would be just posts that went viral where I would even see like celebrities sharing it and stuff. So yeah, that was really cool. Thank you. And I have another question to you. I was actually wondering how much time do you spend on Instagram a day? Or I don't know if it's now TikTok, but generally social media and promoting your content or maybe you also do it on a weekly basis and you plan it. I think that would be interesting to know. I'm always so scared of this question <laughs> because the answer is not a good one. I spend way too much time on social media and that is the bitter truth and but I have to say though that since I started working especially like a full-time job I do not have so much time for social media activism I do have like a private account where I stay in touch with like family and friends but even just in my private life a lot on social media and I think if I like actually plan content post it it takes me up to five six hours a day sometimes just to like do the research, produce the graphics, write a text, stuff like that, and share it and, and engage with people, answer their questions. Yeah, it takes a lot of hours during the day, for sure. And I've, as I'm also following you on Instagram, I would like to know what the current status of the shadow banning is and if you could maybe also explain that phenomena to people out there who are listening. So basically what shadow banning is, is when certain accounts on social media are um, hidden for um, specific reasons. The reasons are not always clear for a lot of people. And it starts with like um, maybe followers not being able to find you, not them not being able to tag you on photos or pictures or on stories, your content not showing up. Basically, you're just completely hidden on uh, Instagram or Facebook or whatever content you are on. And shadow banning, unfortunately, happens to a lot of activists who talk about the patriarchy, capitalism, and the environment and other social justice issues. And the current state is not good, to be honest. I'm, I'm shadow banned for, I think, two years now. I don't know. Like, it's not 
it's not getting better. Sometimes they lift the shadow ban for like a week and they just do it again. So every time I think there's like certain algorithms who are, who can identify words like patriarchy or capitalism or just feminism or anything like that. And the platform will automatically just hide your content. So, yeah. So it's not like you're getting a notification that you're officially shadow banned, but it's rather that you kind of notice for some reason your content doesn't reach as many people and things like that. So they probably, yeah, do something with the algorithm. Yes, exactly. So you don't get like a notification. Usually it's like when you have followers, they will like tell you like, oh, like I tried to find you on social media. I couldn't find you. Or like you would just notice by your story views, by the likes you get on your stuff. Um, so yeah, you will notice by yourself most likely. We would like to also shift to another really big topic that recently took place. And that's obviously the well-known COVID crisis. And we all experienced and saw how our lives were radically shifted towards like a new way of working, living and consuming. We also had guests in our podcast, which described how their personal work went into a new direction and perhaps connecting this to the kind of social media narrative that you were just describing. Would you say that the pandemic has also significantly changed the way you work and do activism nowadays? So I feel like the pandemic had a huge influence in general, not only on my activism work, but on people's perspectives and ideas about the world in general. So when it comes to my work, it drastically changed because I would usually like combine my social media activism with like going to protests and organizing in real life as well. But when that kind of stopped, when I couldn't do that, I had to focus on social media. And funnily enough, During the pandemic, I gained a lot of a lot of new followers. So one reason could be that people just spent more time on social media. And another reason could be that I think a lot of people just got radicalized during this time. And a lot of people actually saw that the system we call capitalism is not sustainable. It's not working, that it's killing people. And people just started to get politicized in general. So... I think the pandemic just opened a lot of eyes and just motivated people to learn about systems and how the world works and how the system actually fails. Isn't it quite weird that like you as an activist who does like capitalist critique and who is definitely like has a strong voice in criticizing patriarchy and, you know, promoting feminism, then uses these platforms which are clearly like capitalist in a way and uh, i bet you have you know thought about this yourself that you know you you're using these tools which which are essentially also somehow embedded in capitalism what's your what's your take on this so this is something that a lot of anti-capitalists usually um hear when they talk about capitalism and how it's actually bad for humans and our world and the environment in general. So one critique of anti-capitalists is the fact that we cannot escape the system even if we wanted to. So if you have certain tools like social media, for example, 
And as a leftist, as someone who wants to like bring change to the world and wants to like educate people and organize, if you don't use tools like social media, you're just, you're not doing the right thing. I mean, we can all already see like, for example, how the right, right wing groups are extremely well connected on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on other platforms. So like we as leftists are usually not so good at it, but I feel like it would be wrong of me to not use these tools, even though they're obviously like censoring me and shadow banning me and trying to like silence me and other activists. This is also part of like resistance and just showing, just like using tools of capitalism itself to maybe like fight against it. A lot of people usually don't have any choices, but for me, it's a choice and I would, and I think I I use it for a good reason. Yeah. Yeah, I I think I completely get your your point and I am also in support of you when it comes to these kind of like strategies because I think similarly like Fridays for Future um also organized itself and became one of the largest movements in Europe and worldwide recently so I think like there can be change also from within the system although yeah as you I don't know whether you intended to cite uh, Mark Fisher there, like there is still like capitalist realism taking place, right? Yes, exactly. I can just agree with you on that. So, okay, then I wonder whether there's a way that you can think of um, the internet as perhaps changing in the future or more, how do you think does internet activism perhaps change in the future? I think it will be extremely interesting to watch how Facebook and Instagram and all these companies will just develop in general. You can clearly see that they obviously have an issue with leftist content. They obviously have an issue with feminist content and anti-capitalist content because obviously, especially when it comes to like anti-capitalism, it's all also targeting them. So we usually tend to forget that These social media platforms are also companies that thrive for profit. They want money. They want to maximize their capital and their and the profits they make. So obviously they don't want to like push certain content that goes against their values and their goals. So I think it would it will just be interesting to see like if these shadow bannings and these censoring tools will be more obvious and if something will change if it will be maybe even more totalitarian on the internet. So we will see that. And because I think it can trigger new debates around maybe freedom of speech and power dynamics on the internet. And when certain private people have power over what topics can be talked about on social media, what should be shown and how the algorithms work. These are like, new problems that I feel like humans haven't talked about enough. I feel like we're just ignoring them and it could become a bigger issue. But in general, I feel like social media should become like a, like a more important tool for leftists and activists. And I think it will be essential in, in general in the future. And I also like try to listen to other activists, for example, like Angela Davis and her thoughts on social media she's also a supporter of it so i think there are a lot of 
goals we can reach through social media, but it's at the end of the day, it's not the solution to our bigger problems. Like just with social media alone, you can obviously not end poverty or homophobia or anything like that. It's a good start, but real life happens offline. And I think that's the most important thing to remember. I think it was um, a very illuminating point that you also described, almost you described how social media is partly more than capitalism, right? Because you described how somebody can go on social media and basically one person, uh, Mark Zuckerberg or like other platforms such as like Jeff Bezos platform on Amazon, all the money that is generated on these platforms actually just go to one person and as if we define capitalism, there is obviously markets, right? And in the markets, you have everybody contributing and everybody participating. However, as you just described, these internet platforms are not markets anymore, but simply algorithms or fortunes by... Monopolies, maybe even like they they set the prices or like they decide upon the content that is shared no exactly it's true so okay then to, in order to connect the dots to the pandemic again we wondered because you also engage with environmentalism to a certain degree next to other social justice questions how you perceived the pandemic to have either like a positive or a negative impact on environmental movement? Okay, so I feel like the climate crisis and the pandemic kind of happened like in a parallel way, even though the pandemic was obviously more of a topic. And it also makes sense because I feel like people were directly confronted with their lives. So it was like more of a direct like survival thing. And even though the climate crisis is too, but it's not like as real as the pandemic was, like it was in front of people's eyes, like people were actually dying, like you could see the numbers. People would usually think more about like the vaccine and just like the pandemic and solutions and surviving in general, rather than the climate crisis. And that would obviously like change, I think it's happening in like in a parallel way. But I think in general, the movement itself, like the environmental movement, just like needs to change certain things about itself. One thing, for example, is to get rid of this idea that environmentalism and veganism and all those things are whitewashed and all only like available and accessible for white people. And I think it needs to get more intersectional. And I think we need to go back to the roots of environmental politics and the fight for environmental justice. And maybe ask ourselves, like, what is environmental activism really about? And like, can it coexist, for example, with capitalism? And how sustainable is capitalism as well? So, yeah. And I also feel like we need to show like the marginalized people of the society, like working class people and like poor people, even like LGBTQ plus people, like queer people, how the climate crisis is directly affecting them. We also want to become a bit more practical in this podcast. And therefore, we also ask our guests to bring a little, yeah, let's call it sustainability hack. And this can be like an object, an idea, or something that you do as part of your routine. 
So, um, Berfin, what is your personal hack that you brought with you here? So I think my personal sustainability hack will be an idea rather than an object. I would say the idea would be that we should stop shaming consumers and single individuals for the global climate crisis. And we need to look at the bigger picture of the issue, which is the system we live in. And we need to see that this system not only like exploits the working and poor class, working class people and, and the poor, but also forces the same group to uphold this capitalistic system. So yeah, my idea would be move away from individual consumerism to wanting to change the system. This is actually exactly what we also want to highlight in the podcast and discuss critically with our guests. So thank you so much for bringing up exactly this topic because Our podcast is talking about what can the individual do for sustainability, but we, of course, really also want to put it in a bigger picture and question our responsibility that we have as individuals. I do still think, though, that, I mean, every human being on Earth has a responsibility in society and also towards the environment, but it cannot just be, like, the responsibility cannot just be on the individual because that's why we have political systems obviously but I still am wondering what would you say is the role of the individual or what could be the possible role of the individual in facilitating this change because I do still think that we need individuals in order to close the gap to be able to demand that it should not be the pressure on responsibility should not just be put on individual consumers. Like it still requires individuals in the end to facilitate this change that you just uh, demanded. What do you think about that? So I think when we say like move away from individual consumerism and this idea that individuals can change this clo uh, global climate crisis, We usually don't mean that, oh, just like don't ever think about the climate crisis and just live your life and just know that the governments and the big guys and the 1% is responsible for all of this mess. I think we still have a lot of responsibility, especially when it comes to like organizing. And we live in like neoliberal capitalistic societies where individualism is very, very pushed. So We tend to forget that it's so important to organize, to like live in communities, to be connected with other people. And that could be like a starter just to like get organized and just educate each other like about what the real issues are and demand just justice, to be honest, demand what people deserve and be loud for what's right. And at the end of the day, there will be become a day where we will realize okay we kind of messed it up we should have taken this more seriously and that will be too late so even as single individuals um obviously we need to we need to start um talking about this and like bringing awareness to this topic because it will directly affect our lives in the future but at the same time it will not bring any solution to the problem if we shame certain people for not living vegan or like for not 
being able to buy slow fashion because it could be more expensive in capitalism because obviously they also make profit off of it. Personally, I'm also really interested in the relationship between poverty and sustainable consumption. So I do really agree with what you just said. In your writing and in your Instagram stories or posts, and also already in this podcast, you have mentioned and often mentioned the term intersectionality. Could you again briefly explain what this is all about, the concept, and define it for people that maybe haven't heard about it? So intersectionality is basically an analytical tool used in academia that recognizes the experiences of individuals or groups of people by looking at systems of inequalities and how they can overlap in general. So categories could be, for example, or like systems could be racism, sexism, homophobia, stuff like that. And it was coined by black women in academia. Um, her name is Kimberly Crenshaw. Yeah, for example, like when I try to explain intersectionality, I usually bring up the first wave of feminism. Back then, the movement was usually led by middle-class white women. And the idea was that our only enemy is the patriarchy. And the main goal and the main topic was the patriarchy and sexism. And this idea that if they ended patriarchy, all women would be liberated was just false. So there were also like black women, for example, who not only faced sexism, but also racism. And maybe disabled women who not only face sexism, but also ableism. So the idea is basically to see or like to look at certain individuals or certain group of, of people and to recognize what kind of inequalities exist and what kind of systems can overlap and coexist with each other. And yeah, intersectionality is basically extremely important to understand the complexity of oppressive systems and to fight against it more effectively. Because without intersectionality, we wouldn't maybe be able to see the real issues of our systems and how they can coexist with each other. So what is the relationship between the climate crisis and intersectionality? So intersectionality can maybe show us how when it comes to like environmental damages and issues, when we use intersect intersectional analysis, we can find out who has more influence and who has more power and who is more affected by environmental damages. There may be like studies and scientific research done where they show that black indigenous people of color, especially women, are way more affected than white people, for example, or men. And intersectionality can basically just answer who has privilege, who has access, who has resources to sustainable products, lifestyles in the West, for example. And intersectionality can just show which groups are most affected by the climate crisis or which groups will be more affected by the climate crisis in the future. So I guess it also really has a lot to do with power relations who has the power who can speak who is listened to and speaking of that do you feel that politicians and people working in the industry which i would assume and do think are really important an important audience to for you or should be uh, do you think they are listening to you and if not how do you think 
that activists like you in general could improve discussions and try to sort of get a hold of them? So I know that there are actually a few politicians who follow me on social media and know of my work. And I do have to say, though, that I actually do not feel listened to, like most um, people in my age would say or most activists would say. And it goes back to like parliamentarian work, politics, that maybe it is or will not be the ultimate answer to it. And maybe we need to stop demanding from certain parties, like from certain political parties. But as like Fridays for Future, for example, did or does to organize outside of it. Yeah, I feel like we need to just m mobilize and find similarities instead of small differences and just be louder together. I think that would be way better than just trying to reach to politicians. If I may ask, and if only if you want to share, but which politicians are following you on Instagram? So I don't want to drop any names, actually, but there are a lot of people from the Green Party, which I'm surprised about, and a few people from socialist political parties. Why are you surprised about the fact that p people from the Green Political Party follow you? I don't know. I always thought that my work is more radical than the work of the Green Party, <laughs> I feel like they they tend to not address the issues within the system. And I gotta say, I'm not like the biggest supporter and I've always been disappointed by them. So I'm quite surprised that there are certain individuals who apparently follow my work and are interested in it. I totally accept that, that you're not sharing these names, but it's still good to know and interesting. And also shows a lot that people from the conservative parties in Austria are not following you at all because it kind of shows the lack of debate that I do think exists and the yeah general uh, filter bubbles that we kind of, yeah, that I think leads to a fragmentation of society. And in worst case, if somebody really wants to find out, they can simply go to your uh, followers and you know, click through them if they have five exactly. or six hours free time <laughs> to spend, right? So Theodore Adorno once said that a system that can keep up incremental changes, which are continuous small changes, is in fact problematic because it can maintain its core values and functions. An example for those times we live in today would be the replacement of plastic straws with bioplastic straws. The only change that takes place is the replacement of material, but the industry behind it, this is exploitation of workers for the profit of large corporations or the manipulation of consumers by feeding them more and more sugar. How does intersectionality address these deeper problems? So Adorno said actually something that is extremely interesting and you can definitely see in today's late stage neoliberal capitalistic system. So something that capitalism loves to do is to renew itself, to find new things that they can show the people so we can basically shut up and stop yelling at the responsible people. We can, for example, see that with the discussions about diversity. Um, when we started to discuss that more white cis straight men were actually sitting in, in the tops of like companies and corporations, 
capitalism just invented diversity management and this idea that, oh, no, our company has enough diverse people, so we're good, don't worry about it. And it's just a way to silence the crowd, to silence the critique that is coming. And it's the same thing with like green capitalism. You can see it. The more people who started a vegan lifestyle, for example, started more sustainable lifestyles, started more environmental friendly lifestyles, the more capitalism tried to hold onto it and make profit off of it. And one thing that intersectionality can obviously do in this in this kind of situation as you said for example is to look for example at poverty and sustainability and how that maybe works and how that maybe doesn't work for example and as we mentioned before it's always about power relations it's about influence power access to resources and and give like certain issues a closer look For example, if we look at global emissions, it's not certain individuals who are responsible for 70% of global emissions around the world. It's 100 corporations. And intersectionality is like a great tool to realize those issues and to find out where the problem is and to fight against it. I hear a lot of criticism against capitalism from you. And I'm wondering... What do you think should or is the better alternative to it? Um, so I don't know if you want to discuss this topic. <laughs> it could go for another four hours if we start talking about alternatives to capitalism. But I feel like people who... So I don't want to like give a specific answer because the debates within the left is also very heated. People have different opinions. But I would consider myself a Marxist, so... I feel like socialist values towards a capitalistic global system is or would be the solution to it, would be the solution to end poverty, to bring back equality and justice. And yeah, one of those, it's way more than that. It's also like giving the land back to indigenous people. It's also about like looking at colonialization and looking at the damages and seeing how much it affected communities back then and how much it affects communities till now. That would be my alternative to capitalism, if that is enough answer for you. Maybe it's not enough answer for us. Um, I personally advocate quite a lot for degrowth, and I see a lot of potential in reducing economic growth in our world because it can, yeah, it can ensure human well-being while being ecologically sustainable. I wonder whether you have also heard or even engaged with degrowth. I actually did read about degrowth and the idea behind it, but I don't see how that would how that could exist within capitalism when capitalism is inherently based on the idea of profit maximization, endless profit maximization, whatever it comes, how many li human lives it will cost. So I don't see how degrowth can coexist within a system that is actually the complete opposite of it. Do you know what I mean? But maybe you can answer the question yeah, for, for me. Yeah, sure. for sure. I think that's also one big debate and the consensus at the moment inside the degrowth movements, using the plural here, is that 
exactly it cannot you know live within capitalism but then there is further debates about whether marxism socialism or any other movement or political system can be embedded within these degrowth ideas perhaps the question for you then is do you see maybe a lack of alliances building inside le inside the left and inside also the larger climate and social equality movements yes definitely and it goes back to this thing we said before that especially when it comes to like the environmental movement it's it's still way too whitewashed it's still i feel like a lot of black indigenous people of color do not feel represented a lot of queer people do not feel represented by the movement And especially, especially a lot of indigenous people are not represented by the movement. And when it comes to like environmental topics, you have to go way deeper than then, than just like saying, oh, switch to a vegan diet or like do that and like switch this and get rid of this. As I said, like it goes back to imperialism, to wars, to taking away the land of indigenous people, to slavery, all of those things. And that. That would need to change. And the other thing is, of course, to, especially like within the left, to see more our similarities and the core issues of the problems we try to address. Like, for example, when it comes to like feminism, that, that like when it comes to like sexism and the patriarchy and how that can overlap with environmental like problems and damages and environmental justice and politics, for example. The same with patriarchy and capitalism, how those two systems can coexist and how they can actually support each other by coexisting. So yeah, it's, it should be more about finding the similarities and trying to find the core problems to be able to fight it better. I don't want to shift the whole discussion towards degrowth, but degrowth does indeed advocate and work on these kind of things. So For instance, there is a lot of academic debate happening as well about the inequality crisis and how it is interlinked to economic growth or how, for instance, women are discriminated in not just capitalist systems, but also with like driven by economic growth because what we pay to people, what contributes to GDP is not what, for instance, care work at home equals. And so... Just, I don't know, as a little side note, like maybe it would be interesting for you actually to check out more about degrowth and how these ideas could yeah, be combined to Marxism. Another kind of topic that we would like to discuss is perhaps the fact that the climate movement is also in a communication crisis, if That's a that's a strong word, but perhaps it is true because we have not really, you know, been successful in relating to people that have not heard about intersectionality. We're having some problems about we're having some problems addressing people that are perhaps of lower socioeconomic classes. So we wanted to ask you as a communication expert whether and how you would approach somebody at a random dinner party tell them about the ecological movement how would you approach such person that's a great question 
so if I would see someone at a dinner party or like a party in general and I want to approach them um, and talk to them about the climate crisis, I would try to maybe guess or think about how they could get interested in it by looking at their situation in life and maybe how they identify. So like if they're, for example, a woman who is interested in sexism and patriarchy and maybe try to show them, hey, like actually like the climate crisis will extremely oppress women and endanger them way more than men, for example. So I would try to just bring, just to like, I would try maybe to, take their experiences and how they move in life to show like your life could be in danger due to the climate crisis because of this and this and this, just to like show them how real the climate crisis could be and how, how much it could affect anyone really. So I think that would be my way. Cool. And then last but not least, we want to give you the chance to, share a few words about the book that you published recently. Um, is there anything in the book that we haven't really addressed in this conversation here so far? So the cool thing about the book is that there are multiple topics talked about. For example, I wrote an essay about environmental racism and how environmental politics could actually be white supremacist politics. And also like how veganism is more than an animal rights movement and can actually be like a social justice movement, stuff like that. So if anyone in, is in general like interested in sustainability and capitalism is interested in a book where it's like easily explained, I think this would be a good start. But I would say most of the important things regarding climate crisis were actually addressed in this podcast. Well, we love to hear that. <laughs> If we do know about the book, then our last and final question, which we always ask to each guest at the end of each episode, is that if they personally, let's say, be... Um, king or queen of the world or like non-binary king or queen <laughs> and they could really do one step towards sustainability everybody would obey and nobody would criticize not even um, raise any concerns they would simply obey and the change can be structural or material if it were you Berfin, what would you do I mean, it's weird to think about myself as like in this extremely high position I would never want to be in because I feel like the pressure would be too, too strong. <laughs> But honestly, the changes that I would implement maybe in that utopian idea is probably and finally make the corporations and the rich responsible. I think that would be my main focus. Yeah, just like to just like fight against them because I know that they're the main issue when it comes to this. Okay, thank you, Berfin. And yeah, keep up the fight. Thank you for being here with us today and talking to us. Do you have any last words to say to our listeners? Um, I would say that... I know that activism can sound scary and activism can sound unreachable for a lot of people. Maybe a lot of people don't see themselves as an activist, but 
I think it's important to understand that activism is not about certain individuals, but about groups and communities wanting to change something. So I would just push and motivate people to keep finding spaces where they can organize and keep reading, keep being educated, getting educated and educate others and go to protests. Don't give up, be loud. And yeah, I feel like that's it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Today we learned about the role that the internet and internet activism can play in facilitating change. We also learned about the importance of looking at power relations. Looking at sustainability from an intersectional perspective may teach us important lessons about who is impacted by the climate crisis in the first place. This, in turn, could help us to learn about where we need political change and where we can personally exert our agency. Thank you for having shared your time with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any questions regarding the episode that you would like to ask us or simply want to share any thoughts or comments with us, then write us at staywme.info at gmail.com or on Instagram, where our username is staywme. We are also very happy if you want to share any feedback with us regarding the show, be it positive or negative. We want to learn together with you and want to make sure that you're receiving the information in a way that you find it useful. Also, don't forget to give us a good review on iTunes or Spotify so that others can come along on our journey. We wish you a great day and light up the green side of your mind. <laughs>